Good afternoon. Uh, today's scripture reading will come from the letter of James, chapter 1, verse 2 through 18. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it'll be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass. His flower falls and his beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his, his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Hi, New Hope. Thanks, Joe, for reading those verses to us. Good to see you all again. Last week, uh, we jumped into a new sermon series in the book of James. And today, we're going to keep walking through James. But before we do that, I want to invite you to pray with me. Let's ask God for the help we need. Yeah, let's ask God. Lord, we commit ourselves to you. And we do so because we have no other hope. There's no strength in us, no ability in us to even read your word with understanding. We need your spirit. But there's certainly no way, no strength naturally in us to be able to respond to your word with faith and with obedience. Can't do that apart from your spirit working in us. So spirit, please work in us. Please help us to understand what your word is saying to us. More than that, spirit, move us to joyfully receive what you're saying to us. And, and would you cause what we receive from you to shape the way that we live? We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The letter of James is a letter about faith in action. It's a letter written by James, who happens to be the half-brother of Jesus. And I say he's the half-brother, explained this last week, half-brother because he was the son of Joseph and Mary, biologically, whereas Jesus was the biological son of Mary, but was conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit, not by Joseph. So they're brothers. They grew up in the same household. James became a prominent leader within the church. And as a man who at one time did not believe that Jesus, his brother, was the Christ, the Messiah, had to become convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, and once he came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, he had to figure out how to live as a follower of Jesus. He had to figure out how to live out his faith. And so he writes this letter to Christians to help us live out our faith. So when we say that this is a letter about faith and action, what I mean is that it's a letter instructing us on how to walk out, how to live out practically faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a challenging book, 
And as I said last week, not so much challenging because it's hard to understand, although there are parts of it that may be hard to understand. It's challenging because it's calling us away from being what James calls double-minded. But he's calling us away from, from this kind of double-mindedness that puts our faith in Jesus, but also hedges that bet with putting faith in other things at the same time. You see, we're all prone to live in such a way that we would say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, I believe in his word, but we don't always live that way, do we? Instead, we live as if our faith is in other things. And James calls that double-mindedness. James wants to call us away from that. He wants to align our words, deeds, and thoughts with our belief so that the way we live lines up with what we believe about Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. James is calling us to a wholehearted, functional faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's calling us to a lived-out faith. In chapter 1, he jumps right into the deep end, and he brings us with him. Because as he starts to talk about what it looks like to live out, to walk out faith, he says, I'm first going to talk to you about how we need to walk out our faith in our darkest days, in days of suffering, in days of trials. He instructs us on how to live out our faith in the midst of trials. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Are there more challenging words in the whole New Testament? I'm not sure that there are. Count it all joy, not just a little bit of joy. It's all joy. It's all good. Look at your sufferings and your trials that way. How do we do that? How do we walk out a living faith in Jesus Christ when trials hit hard, when suffering hits hard? Well, there's three things at least that I think James wants us to see here, and I want to point them out. Three things that James tells us we need to know if we're going to walk out our faith in the midst of trials. The first one is this. We need to know this. God is good. God is good. Look at verse 2 once again. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He's saying, listen, behind your trials, there is a good God. In fact, he's not just a good God, he is a sovereign God, and he's a purposeful God. That means that when he brings these trials into your life, he's doing it with a, 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 a clear intentionality. There's purpose behind it. There's a plan behind it. Your good God has good purposes for you in the midst of the trials that you face in your life. And as we read on through this, we find out that it's not that the trials themselves are good in and of themselves. That's not the case. But that through those trials, a good God is doing something. James is writing, by the way, as a man who would eventually die for his faith. He would be martyred. Tradition tells us that he was stoned to death. Or at least they attempted to stone him to death, but he didn't die, so they threw him from a high place. He fell down, and he was still kind of half alive, and then someone came over and finally delivered the death blow. That's what church tradition tells us. I don't know about the details, whether they're trustworthy or not. He did die as a martyr, though. That much we know. So the reason I bring that up is because James is not naive about suffering. He's not talking about trials hypothetically. He knows that life is hard. He has seen brothers of his, fellow disciples of Christ, he's seen them executed. His own brother was executed. James knows trials. And yet he comes to us and he tells us that through these trials, a good God is doing something good. In fact, he says God is testing your faith in order to produce steadfastness. It's, it's similar to what Paul says in Romans 5, 3. He says, there, Paul says, suffering produces endurance. And steadfastness is similar to endurance, but it's not quite the same thing. 
Steadfastness means, steadfast means unshakable, immovable, firm in place. So, so think of a, a tree that, that has long, healthy roots, thick roots, that, that, are, that are digging deep into the ground. And those healthy roots keep that tree in place, not only on the sunny days, but in the midst of hurricanes, in the midst of whirlwinds. That tree that is healthy, that is deeply rooted, that is steadfast, is able to survive when the hurricane comes. And in fact, once the hurricane's gone, we find that that tree is still growing. It's, it's getting stronger. Steadfastness. And this steadfastness that God wants to work in us, it's, it's another step in Him making us perfect, complete, lacking in nothing, James says. God is perfecting us. And the perfect here, by the way, and this means, I'm not just talking about perfect, like one day when Christ returns, and you are all, all those who are in Christ will be glorified, we'll all be perfect. That means we'll be without sin. But I think that with the perfect here that James is talking about is maybe something short of that, something different. He's saying that in this life, right now, through your experiences, and especially through your trials, God is perfecting you. And the perfect there doesn't necessarily mean without sin, Without flaw. No, the perfect here means mature. Perfect means to have reached your goal. You've grown into the thing that you were meant to grow into. Lacking in nothing. Maturity is what God is after. And part of that maturity in us, steadfastness. Your God is taking you somewhere. Your character your faith are being molded. They're being built up. Trials are one thing that he uses to do that. Now, this means when James says to us, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of every sort, it doesn't mean that you or I should approach someone that you know that's suffering in the midst of pain. Maybe they're worn down, they're beaten up, they're discouraged. Maybe they're hopeless. They're in tears. The last thing you or I need to do is come to that person and say, you, you enjoying this? Embrace that joy, my brother. It's all joy. It's all good, my sister. Enjoy it. Embrace it. Steadfastness is at work in you. No, it's not what he's telling us to do. Instead, actually, the Lord tells us to weep with those who weep, right? And rejoice with those who rejoice. So this is not telling us to make light of suffering at all, but what it's telling us, it's also not telling us to simply take a, a positive outlook in the midst of our suffering. He's not saying, look, 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 just, just, I'm, I'm going to stick out my chin and grin and say, the sun will come out tomorrow. Nah, that's cheap advice, and that's not what James has for us. What James tells us here means that true joy, first of all, for the child of God, doesn't depend on our circumstances. True, deeply rooted joy doesn't depend on our circumstances. True, deeply rooted joy is based in the fact that we know that our God is good, and that He's a good Father, and He's a sovereign, purposeful King who works all things together for our good. And that all things together for our good includes our transformation, our sanctification, our growth in steadfastness. So we can rejoice in that even while, see, we can rejoice in that even while we're mourning, we're lamenting, we're crying and grieving. The kind of joy he's talking about here is not just a smile on your face. It's, it's joy that's found in the midst of grief, in the midst of deep sorrow, when everything feels like it's falling apart. Deep down, there's still this hope. There's still this, this kernel, this, this, this deeply rooted joy that says, there's a God. He loves me. And even though everything looks like it's falling apart, I can still Rest in this. 
that my God is doing something good. It's not a cheap joy, but it's a deep joy. He is perfecting me. And that doesn't make the pain go away. But knowing that he is completing what he began in me helps me to stand firm, to remain steadfast in the trial. Amen? So, this is, and by the way, this is not just for individual Christians. This is not just James talking to you, Curtis, talking to you, Mike, talking to you, Ellie, saying, hey, you, God has purpose in your trials. It's not just you as an individual, although it is. It's more than that. It's, it, it's just speaking to us as a church, as a community. God builds steadfastness in a community, a family, through trials. Just as he builds steadfastness in individuals through trials. So first thing we need to know if we're going to walk out our faith in the midst of trials is that God is good. Here's the second thing. Second thing. We need wisdom. You and I need wisdom. If we're going to walk out our faith in the midst of trials, look at what verse 5 says. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For the person must not, that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. There's a, there's a contrast drawn here. First we heard about this, what, the, this the, the steadfastness of one who has walked in faith through their trials and has actually been uh, strengthened, has been more deeply rooted and anchored through those trials. And there's another image here. It's the image of the double-minded man who's unstable in all his ways. In the midst of trials, that person is being tossed around like waves on the ocean. Unstable. Unanchored. A vivid contrast. James is telling us, it's at least implied here, that we're not going to grow wise just by going through trouble. That is, trouble in your life won't automatically make you wise. We must ask for wisdom. We must ask for it. Because we will need wisdom to know how to navigate the trials that we're facing, whatever they might be. Think about the trials that you are experiencing right now. Maybe you think they're minor. Oh, I can't even compare my trials to someone else. Those trials, whatever you're going through, matters to the Lord. Someone else might look at it and be like, oh man, I've seen worse than that. That's not that bad. We tend to do that, by the way. We like compare suffering with each other, you know? Someone's like, man, I've been out of job for a month. What? I... I I went through worse than that. I was out of job for a year. As if we're like competing. The Lord looks at you in whatever trial you're experiencing, whether it might look minor or insignificant to someone else, and knows how hard it is for you. He knows the pain. And he comes to you in the midst of it. And he says, if you're going to navigate that trial, you're going to need wisdom. And he looks to those of us who maybe are going through trials that would shock others if you told them about them. Trials that are completely life-changing. The worst things that you've ever experienced in your life, maybe you're going through right now. God looks and he says, don't lose hope. But, but listen, you're going to need wisdom to navigate this. You're going to need wisdom. And so ask me for it. And I will give it to you without reproach. Which I always, I always love that little phrase in there, without reproach. Like sometimes someone might ask you for something, and you give it to them, but you kind of make them feel bad about it. You know, like your kid asks you for some money, you're like, all right, here you go. It's got, there's like reproach, even as you give it to them. You're like, yeah, don't ask for more. Again, you're asking for more. God doesn't shame us when we come to him looking for wisdom. In fact, he, he graciously, abundantly says, keep asking, and I will keep giving it to you. So generous. But we must ask. And why must we ask? Because you'll need it 
to navigate those trials. So often, here's the problem, when suffering comes and trials come, we find ourselves unprepared. Maybe we thought we were prepared, but when the trial comes, we're, we're thrown off. We're shaken up by it. We're knocked down by it. So because we're unprepared, when the trials come, we respond foolishly. Not with wisdom, but without it. The great philosopher Mike Tyson once said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. There was a point, Mike Tyson was one of the greatest boxers of all time for a period, and there was a point in his career where he was just destroying every opponent in his path. And there was a run there where, where opponents would, I mean, they would prepare to fight him, they would train hard, and they'd develop strategies, and they'd go over those strategies with their trainers, and they'd spar with other fighters to prepare, and they'd have a plan in mind. They'd go into the ring with Mike Tyson thinking, here's what I need to do to survive, <laughs> and here's what I need to do to even win. The bell would ring, and Tyson would move across the ring so quickly. He didn't meet the guy, his opponent, in the middle of the ring. He met his opponent in the other opponent's corner. He just rushed out and pummeled his opponent. And what happened is as soon as Mike Tyson would connect one hand to his opponent's face, all that opponent's plans would go out the window. All the strategies all the wise preparation, it's all useless now. Because everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And most of his opponents, when they got punched in the mouth, they would do what most of us would do. They would simply resort to their most basic instincts, survival instincts. They would flail, cling, <laughs> panic, and just hope that the bell would ring soon. And to some degree, I think this is the way we face trials, because we're unprepared for them. They, they come into our lives, and we resort to our most basic instincts. We go into a kind of fight-or-flight mode. We, we, we start flailing. We start clinging. We start panicking. We just start hoping, Lord, bring this to an end. Just end it now. I did, the, the, the bell's got to ring soon, because I'm, I'm, I can't survive this. We're looking for ways to get out of the ring as fast as possible. God is saying that even if you think you are prepared for trials in your life, you're not prepared unless and until you have sought wisdom from Him. There are many foolish ways that we respond to trials. I want to give you a couple of examples of foolish ways that I think some of us have responded to trials. Um, sometimes we just try to escape those trials. Right? Trouble comes, we just try to flee from the trouble. Get as far from it as possible, even if it means that we need to compromise um, ethically to get out of the problem. So maybe we'll cheat, just try to run away, hide from the problem. It doesn't always work. We end up feeling ashamed because of our cowardice. Or... Some of us, we don't try to escape trials. Maybe we just try to cope with them. Cope with them. We self-medicate. Maybe we drink more than we should, or we eat more than we usually would, use drugs, just use entertainment to just help us cope, go look at porn again. We're just trying to cope. Here's another foolish response, common one, the trials. We start to distrust God. We, we foolishly begin to rebel against our good God. We, we think he's abandoned us, and so we start abandoning him. We start accusing him of evil. Why are you doing this in my life, God? I trusted you, and this is what you do? So this is why we need wisdom, so that we won't try to escape trial, and we won't just try to cope and manage it in silly ways. And so that we won't begin to believe that God has turned on us. Isn't it incredible that the very thing that God says, I will use trials 
to build steadfastness in you. I'm going to use trials to actually draw you closer to me. And yet when we respond badly to trials, the result is that we end up driving ourselves away from God. Like distancing ourselves from him because we stop trusting him. The very things that are meant to draw us in into deeper intimacy and a deeper knowledge of God, we miss use, we respond to them so badly that uh, we end up doubting our God. You see, God's saying, I'm going to use these trials to build steadfastness. It's, it's part of maturing you. And maybe some of us, we think that's a good thing. Like, I want God to mature me. Who doesn't want that? But when the trials hit, Maturity is not such a high priority for you at that point, is it? Like, maturity is all good, but this hurts. I'll take some comfort right now. I'll take some peace. Maturity is fine, but I don't need maturity in my life right now. I don't need steadfastness, Lord. What I need is just some, some respite. I just need peace. Just, I need some comfort. Make the pain stop. Maybe when the pain hits, we don't value maturity all that much. We just want to find a way out of the ring. God says, that's a foolish response. Much wiser to trust in me in the midst of that trial. You see, wisdom under trials means trusting in him and his purposes. This passage Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Often, um, I have seen this passage taken out of context. I've done it a million times. We often do it. We, we, when we are going to make a big decision in life, we say, we need wisdom. Let's ask God, because James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. i got a big decision to make about whether or not to take this job, or a big decision about who I should date, or a big decision about where I should move to. I've got choices. Let's ask God for wisdom. Now, that's... Correct, we should ask God for wisdom in all of those situations. But the fact is that what James is talking about right here is not wisdom to make good choices to further your career, for instance. He's talking about the wisdom we will need to trust the Lord in the midst of trials. The wisdom we need to keep our head straight and to know God is still good. God is still present. He has not changed. He is still for me even though this really hurts. Wisdom under trials means in part not only knowing that God is trusting that God is, is sovereign over us as we sang earlier, but that he's wise and he's good. Because when the trials hit, we are often tempted to not believe that. In fact, when trouble hits, we, we start getting tempted in a million different ways, don't we? Trials often come with temptations. That's why James tells us in verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see what James is saying here? There's a difference between testing and tempting. He's saying God tests. He tests our faith. He tests us. He did it to Abraham in Genesis 22. He tested Abraham when he asked Abraham to do the unthinkable, when he asked Abraham to sacrifice his own son. What happened as a result of that test? Abraham obeyed Jesus, obeyed, the, obeyed God, although it was painful and confusing. He was disoriented by the whole thing. He didn't know why God was asking him to do this, but he trusted, and he did it. God came through and rescued his son. What happened as a result? What happened as a result of that test? Did God learn something new about Abraham? Oh, no, he didn't. But Abraham learned something new about God. And Abraham learned something new about himself. Abraham was tested, and Abraham was transformed. There's no new information in there for God. The test was not for God's benefit. The, God, the test was for 
Abraham's benefit. And by extension, that test was for our benefit because we get to read about it. That's through that whole test. It was just part of God's big redemptive plan. God tests. He does, but he never tempts. He tests in order to refine our faith, to build in us steadfastness, in order to show us more of who we are and who he is. But he never lures you into sin. That's what temptation is. And God doesn't do that. He says you are tempted when you allow your own desires to lure and entice you. That's what temptation is. God's not about that. God says, listen, I'll take full responsibility for the trials in your life. I will not take responsibility for the temptations in your life. Those temptations are on you. Now, it's true. The Bible tells us that the enemy, Satan, tempts us as well. And James will talk about that to some degree later on but in, in this letter. But here, I believe the temptation he's talking about is not so much a temptation that comes when Satan comes and tempts us the way that he did the Lord Jesus. That's, that happens. He's talking about the temptation that starts from in here. From in here. It's our own desires becoming so, so strong that they're overpowering our faith. I'll give you some examples of what this might look like. You find yourself in financial trouble. And so you're tempted to take some steps to get yourself out of that hole that you know aren't right. So you think, if I just cheat a little bit in this area, I can get myself out of this hole. And I don't plan to keep cheating. I just need to cheat. Maybe it's on my taxes. Maybe it's some other way. I've got to find a way to get some money just so I can get out of this hole. No, it's not honest. No, it's not ethical. But I'll do it. But once I'm out of this hole, then, yeah, I'll obey God after that. See the temptation there. The temptation to get yourself out of the financial hole by stealing. Maybe it's stealing from the government. Maybe it's stealing from someone else. Or maybe it's stealing from God. Well, let's say you're in the trials you're facing. And I don't mean to make light of any of these trials, brothers and sisters. But let's say the trials you're facing are marriage. It's so painful and it's so hard. And you're finding it hard to trust that there's a good God present in all this. And so you start to get tempted. Maybe it's tempted to go find affection from someone other than your spouse. Tempted to find trust and love and care from someone other than this person that you're in this covenant with. Maybe you're even tempted not only to cheat on that spouse, but you're, you're tempted to just walk away altogether. Because you're being lured by the desires of your own heart. That desire to get out of this trial as quickly as possible, no matter what it takes. Or maybe you're in conflict with someone. It's a friend. It's a family member. Or people. You're in conflict with them. And, and it's so hard. It hurts so much. They have hurt you. And maybe you've hurt them too. And the whole thing just is terrible. And so you're tempted towards hate. Bitterness. Maybe you're tempted to start gossiping and sland, you know, just sland, uh, slandering these people, this person. Maybe you're tempted to just isolate yourself from people altogether. Like, I'm done with folks. You, you, I don't need this in my life. Maybe you're tempted towards revenge. You see, it's manifold. Just the temptations, are. there's no end to them. Maybe the trials you're facing are so hard and they can be so difficult that you're tempted to give up altogether. Like, check out. I'm done with these trials. I will, I will end everything if it means that I can step out of this ring because this hurts. And all of those are foolish, foolish strategies, foolish responses. It's this temptation towards relief at any cost. The quickest, easiest, most natural way that I can get out of this, I'm going to do it, even if it's illegitimate, even if it means that I need to rebel against God and stray and abandon him. It's self-salvation. It's self-redemption from the trial. And it's all unwise. James says it all spawns in the human heart where our desires overpower our trust in God. And he says that temptation, it gives birth to sin. Right, so it starts with temptation, desire, leads to action, the sin, and then the sin leads to what? He says, death. Now, I know that we, most of us would say, we know that temptation can lead to sin, 
But did you also know that that sin inevitably leads to death? To destruction? There's a severe warning in here for us. All of these strategies to, to escape trials in ways that are, that are foolish, that are not trusting in God, they lead to destruction. It all leads to death. I have seen what it looks like. I'm sad to say I've seen this several times in my life. To look in the eyes of a person who would call themselves your brother, your sister in the faith. They'd say, yeah, I, I trust God. Yeah, yeah, I believe the gospel. But they're in a trial so severe and they're suffering so much. And that suffering may be a result of their own doing, but they're in a trial. And through tears, I've seen them look at me and say, here's what I'm going to do to get out of this. And what they describe is complete folly. It means walking away from covenant commitment. It means walking away from God. It means disobeying completely the, the, the revealed will of God. Basically, people are saying, people saying, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get myself out of this. And I know, I know it's not what God wants me to do, but I just, I'm going to do it anyway. It's the only way that seems right to me. God looks at us in that and says, listen, there's a path that seems wise to a man, but its end is destruction. So don't walk that path. Instead, he says, ask me for wisdom. Ask me for wisdom. It's so easy to respond foolishly to the trials that we face. One of the ways I believe we respond foolishly to trials is when we begin to, um, we begin to look to our own resources. Like maybe it's money, maybe it's power, connections. We start looking to those things to get us out. Our trials. I think that's kind of what James is talking about here in verse 9. He says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower fails and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. A person who is wealthy has power, maybe influence, and money may be tempted to think that the solution to my trials is here. And my money and my resources. Well, God comes and he's speaking to both poor people and rich people. And he's saying to those rich, you may feel like you have no resources to face your trials. You, you don't have money. You don't have power. You might feel like you have nothing to face your trials. And he says, no, 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 no. You, you, can, you can trust in this. I will exalt you. I will exalt you. Put your trust in me. But he comes to the rich people and he says, you might think that you've got everything you need to take care of your troubles. You can fix this, you feel like, because you've got money and power and influence. He says, no, 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 no. You must realize that these resources you're looking to, this is also temporary and also meaningless, really. Just as the sun rises and withers the grass, Your wealth will fade away. Your power and prestige will fade away. Don't put your hope there. Don't put your hope in those resources that you might have. Now, wisdom here means trusting that God is good, that he is up to good, and trusting that he knows what is good for you. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Those words may come across as harsh to you. I wonder if they do. God, listen, God is not saying here that in order for you to receive wisdom or anything else from him, you must come with this kind of pristine, perfect, no doubt at all. 
Because if you're doubting even a little bit, God's going to take back that grace. He's going to take, no, 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 I only give to those who come with perfect faith. Now, the rest of the Bible shows that, shows that that's not the case. Because there's no one in this Bible that has perfect faith. Except for Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus himself extends many good gifts to those who come to him with very faulty faith. <laughs> Doubt-riddled faith. The Bible tells us that a, a smoldering wick, he doesn't snuff out. Right? A broken reed, a bent reed, he doesn't come and just break it. If your faith is weak, your faith is smoldering, he doesn't come and just squash that and say, no, that faith's not good enough. I'm not going to give you anything. In fact, God welcomes us to come to him and say to him, yes, I believe, but help my unbelief. My faith is weak. I'm believing in you, Lord, but I'm not believing in you the way I need to believe in you. My faith, my faith is weak. Help me even in my unbelief. What James 1 is telling us is that God gives generously. But in order for you to receive what he has for you, in order for you to receive that wisdom, you need to believe in him. Because if you don't even believe in him, not just you won't even ask. Why would you even want wisdom from him if you don't believe that he's wise and you don't believe that he's willing to give it to you? And so he says, trust me in this. Trust me in the trial that I have you in. I will grow you in steadfastness. Trust me in this. Trust me that the wisdom you need, I can give you. Because if you don't trust me, you're going to be unstable. You're going to be flailing. You're going to be like a wave tossed back and forth. It'd be like Michael Spinks when he fought Tyson and he lasted all of what, 30 seconds or something like that? Went in there flailing, unready, laid out. I'm not saying your trials don't need to do that to you. Trust in me. Trust in me. Ask and I will give you. And notice he's not saying ask and I will give you all the relief you desire right now. No, he's not saying that. He said, I will give you the wisdom. I'll give you what you need to survive and thrive through this pain. Last thing. He said you, we need to know that um, God is good. We need wisdom. Last thing, we need hope. You and I need hope if we're going to live out our faith through trials. Verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. That's our hope. That's the hope we need if we're going to make it through a trial. It's hope in two parts. One, here's the first part. Those trials are temporary and they are purposeful. That is, they're not going to last forever and God's doing something in them. But there's a second part to the hope. The second part is this, that glory for you is near and it's permanent. Glory for you is near. And unlike these trials you're going through, that glory, that peace, it's permanent. The crown of life awaits you, he says, if you will stand steadfast through these trials. You'll receive a crown from God himself. And this crown, I, I think that often when we think of crown, we think of like a royal, some kind of royal crown with lots of jewels in it, big and shiny. I don't, I think there's reason to believe that that's not what he has in mind here. It's not the kind of crown that a king would wear or a crown that a, a princess would wear. Although I'm not sure if princesses wear crowns, whatever princesses wear. Perhaps a crown. I told this story earlier, but... There was a, my, my son won a, a crown recently at a, I think it was at a camp we were at. He won like this, this thing, this crown. He put it on his head and my little three-year-old looks at him and says, Marcelo, I love your tiara, she says. <laughs> I thought it was so funny. I thought it was very funny. I, but the fact is, this, what he's talking about here is not a tiara and it's not a royal crown. I don't think it is. I think what he's referring to here, it looks more like the, the, the wreath, the, the, the laurel wreath that would be put on the head of an athlete after they cross the finish line. After they win. Because they've run the race. And they made it through. Steadfast. And what does that crown mean? 
That crown, it's not the crown you put on a king. It's just a symbol of authority or power necessarily. But what kind of crown are we talking about here in James? There are the kind of crowns that God talks about elsewhere. But what kind of crown are we talking about here? This crown of life. This crown says, you have finished. You have reached the goal. You did it. You can rest now. Trials are over. You are done. And, 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 and well done. Well done. Enter into my rest. My son started running cross country for the first time this season. And what we've seen when we go to these races is that towards the end of that race, man, everyone looks beat. You know, when the, when the gun goes off, everyone, you know, a bunch of 14, 13-year-olds, they look like they can run a marathon without a drink of water. They all look like they've got enough energy to just keep going forever. But once they get to the end of that race, they're all kind of slogging, right? They look tired. They're beat. And so as they make it around that last turn and they're coming towards the, the finish line, there's always a bunch of parents and coaches and we're all there at the, at the end. And you know what we're doing? We're yelling. We're saying, push it. Go, sprint, sprint, sprint. I'm always saying, pass that guy. Now pass that guy. He's gaining. Don't let him pass it. Pass him. Push it. Push it. Do it. Let's go. And, and what I've seen in my son and in his teammates is as he's coming to the end and he sees the finish line there and he hears the voices saying, push it. You're almost there. So he's not tired anymore. He, he, he increases speed. It's like 25% faster. He starts pushing. He's sprinting hard. As we go through trials, we have James, not just James, we have the Lord himself, and we have a whole history of brothers and sisters who have gone before us. A whole pantheon of brothers and sisters who have been through trials like us, and they are shouting, and they're saying, push it, keep going. The end's almost here. The crown's almost here. You see, that's your hope. You are close to the end, so rush harder. Push and don't look back. Beloved, you are one day closer to the resurrection. And tomorrow, we will be one day closer still. That's our hope. The hope is not, look, the sun will come out tomorrow. No, our hope is that the Son of God will come soon. And when he comes, he will present his church, us, to himself in splendor, holy, without blemish. So hang in there. This is what James is telling us. He says, hang in there. You, Will, Mitchell, and Steve, Sharon, hang in there. Christian, hang in there. Because I will hold you fast. And you are one day closer to the crown that awaits you. You see, it's not, it's not keep your chin up. Things will be better soon. This trial will be over soon. The Bible doesn't give us that kind of hope. Because the fact is that, yeah, the trial you're going through right now, it will be over soon. But there will be other trials, won't there? There will be others. And the fact is that there may be worse ones ahead, as hard as that might be to believe for you. There may be worse trials ahead. The hope that God gives us is better than that. He says, after all these trials are through, what awaits you is me and rest and life. James ends with this. He says, do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his, own will he, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from God. They're all good. Do, are trials a part of that? Ooh, really? Are they? I mean, based on the context here and the fact that James is talking about trials, I think he's telling us that even in these trials, there are good gifts for us. The trial itself, maybe you say, that's not a gift. This is awful. This is a result of living in a broken world. But in that gift, packed in it and behind it, is a good God who's got some gifts for you. The trial itself is not intended by God to crush you. Look, if you are in Christ, listen, the trial is not intended by God to judge you. 
to condemn you or shame you. That's not what he's doing. <laughs> he's perfecting you. And James was talking here to the first generation of Christians ever. And he says, he birthed you by grace. And that's true of every single other generation of Christians that have followed, including us. He has birthed us by grace. And if he has done that, then we can trust him with everything. He gave you his son, whose, his son was tempted and tried for you. And he died and he rose again. And that son is committed to you still. So how will you respond? How will we respond to the trials we're in now and the trials that we're facing in the future? How will we help each other face those trials? God is saying, this is in your life, and you don't need to understand all the details of what I'm doing here, but know this, know this. In this trial, I'm calling you to press into me, to trust me, to believe that I am good. Are we going to do that or are we going to push away from him? Walk away from him. Distrust him. Disciple of Jesus, you together are Christ's beloved church. And you can live out your faith in this season and in future trials. And as you do that, he will deepen, he will strengthen. He will purify your faith because he is not done with you. New hope, he is not done with us. He has a goal in mind and he won't quit till he gets there, till he gets us there. And that goal is steadfast. Steadfast. Let's pray. Lord, we entrust ourselves to you and we entrust our, our lives to you. Lord, we find it difficult to trust that even the difficulties in our lives are going to be used by you to bring about good, but help us to trust, Lord. Help us to believe. Lord, we want to be steadfast. We want to be mature in the Lord. But we're not always going to want what comes with that, the, the means by which that maturity comes. So give us wisdom. Help us, Lord. Help us and remind us of how much you love us especially when the heat goes up and the pain gets intense and the days look darker. Lord, would you please remind us of how much you love us? Give us the wisdom we need to trust you. Lord, make us steadfast. We ask in your name. Amen.